Hey, we had a great uh, Sunday school class last week. I'm sure we'll have another good one this morning. Last week we talked about truth and the time and the culture we live in. And one of the verses uh, that comes to mind when we think about that is out of Isaiah. And Isaiah said in his day that uh, truth had stumbled, truth had fallen in the street. And it was the thought that truth in their culture had been mugged. It couldn't stand in the public square. And I think we're in times like that again today. Uh, we're in a political arena, a cycle again too. So we've got politicians making one form or another of promises. And you start asking yourself, right, if you haven't already, uh, who can I trust? Whose word can I trust? What promise is really going to be kept? And whether it's the culture or the politics of the time, We've got good reason to hold someone else's promises very lightly, don't we? You know, there's two things that are important for us, really key. If you and I are going to believe someone else's promise, if we're going to hold on to that and believe that they're going to keep it, we've got to have at least two elements in store. And one is this, we've got to know that that person is trustworthy. We've got to know the person is trustworthy, that they're characterized by doing what they say. And then the other thing we need to know is that they, in fact, have the power or the ability to carry out what they've said. So today, as we start, just ask yourself the question, what promises can you and I count on that others have given us, the political arena, Scripture, of course, is where we'll head with this, and who can we believe? What promises can we hold on to and who can we believe? We're in week three of the series, Behold Your God, if you remember, the goal of this series is to see God as He is, look at Him through the lens He's presented us in Scripture, and as we see Him and admire Him for the perfections that He has and is, that we'll become like Him. This whole series was predicated on the truth of Psalm 115, verse 8, where the psalmist said related to pagans worshiping idols, he said those who make those statues, those idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. The psalmist said we become like the object of our worship. And G.K. Beale in his important book called We Become What We Worship said this, what people revere, and so we could say we admire, we look up to, we worship in one form or another, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. So it's an important thing to ask ourselves, are we growing towards ruin or restoration? Are we becoming more fully in the image of Christ, redeemed, walking in the new nature, more and more glorious? Or are we simply becoming the worst version of ourself, that old sinful nature that can't please God on the best day of the week? Which direction are we moving in? To answer the question, if you ask yourself, who am I emulating? Who am I listening to? Who or what am I worshiping? That will provide the answer for you. So, we're looking at God this morning as someone who makes and then keeps promises. God is the promise maker and God is the promise keeper. So, back to the who should you believe and when should you believe them. If you had a million dollar debt and I told you I'm going to pay off your million dollar debt. If you knew me, you might say Mike's really well intentioned and, he, and Mike wants to be helpful. But then you'd also know that Mike has absolutely no ability to pay off a million dollar debt. So you'd say on one hand, I, Mike's motive may be good 
And I'd like to believe him, but on the other hand, you'd say, but I know his bank account, he can't do it. I don't believe that promise. Or if I'm a multimillionaire business mogul and I'm, I got my money the old-fashioned way, I lied, cheated, scammed, whatever to get it, and I tell you, go into business with me and I'll double your money. Well, on this you say, well, Mike has the power to keep the promise. But he's not trustworthy, so I don't believe that promise either. So we've really got to end up with promises based on someone who's absolutely trustworthy and who has the power to do what he said he'll do. Now in Hebrews 6, verse 17 and 18, and we'll sort of pursue this theme through the morning, the author to the Hebrews said this about God. And this had to do with promises God had already made and the fact that God wanted to know that Abraham and Abraham's heirs who'd received these promises could absolutely count on God keeping His Word. Hebrews 6 says this, "...by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie." Hebrews 6 says God spoke what He would do. He can't lie, so it's going to happen. And then on top of that, He guaranteed that promise with an oath. So a God who can't lie said, this is what I'm going to do. You can count on it. And to make sure they knew, He said, and I'm going to also make that promise strengthened in your mind by making it with an oath as well. So God can't lie if He makes a promise. He's going to keep it. That's one thing. God's trustworthy. The other thing is this. Job 42.2 If you remember in the book of Job, Job had some complaints with God and we might have said rightfully so the way God was treating His friend Job or allowing Job to be treated. But at the end of the day, when God revealed Himself to Job, and Job says, now I see God as He is, Job made this conclusion, I know that you can do all things and that none of your purposes can be thwarted. Job said, Lord, you have all power and whatever you choose to do is going to happen. Nobody can stop you from fulfilling your good promises. So as we're looking through these promises this morning, we're going to see that God makes promises in a few different ways. The Old Testament has no word for our word promise. The, the word doesn't exist in Hebrew. So if you read promise, that English word in your English translation, it's usually translating a word that just means word or spoke or said. So God speaks about what He'll do in the future. It just hasn't happened yet. That's a promise. That's one thing. He also gives oaths. You know, an oath was an appeal to someone greater than yourself that you would in fact do something. And the word itself comes from a Hebrew word that means seven. It's like I told you seven times the same thing. Mike's saying in all the ways he can, I'm really going to do this. I'm really going to do it. I'm really going to do it. I'm really going to do it. That's an oath. And a covenant is a sacred promise. We think of contract law. Today, you know, we make a contract. They're easily broken. Covenants were not like that. There was a, there was a moral character to breaking covenant. It was seen as uh, morally reprehensible. It wasn't just like I declared bankruptcy and got out of a contract. It had a deeper significance than that. So God makes promises in three different ways. He simply declares what He'll do. He makes oaths and He makes covenants. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going we're gonna to run through. There's way too much content this morning, but, but uh, we'll get through it as quickly as we can. Uh, let's see, how am I on time? Sorry, I forgot to start my timer. That's never a good thing. Never a good thing. Okay. Uh, let me, let me uh, qualify though where we're going with this. Five things. 
We're going to go through the promises in the Old Testament that we'll look at this morning. They're the key concepts in the Old Testament about promise and covenant. These are the primary covenants God made in the Old Testament. Now, when God made promises, whether He spoke them, gave them by oath, or covenant, we need to understand something. God initiated. We didn't go to God and say, we need you to do this for us. God initiated the promises because He knew what we needed. So God initiates His promises to us in grace because He knows who we are and what our need is. This isn't God's response to our keen idea. This is God's graceful initiation to us based on what our real needs are. The second thing is this. Most of the promises that affect you and I today are unconditional in their nature. Whether it's a covenant or a promise. And that's an important thing for us to understand. If God makes an unconditional promise, that means it, it requires nothing of you and I. God says, this is what I'm going to do. Now, if you know yourself at all, and, and I know myself, if God made promises to Mike that were dependent on Mike's faithfulness, I would be in trouble. If it was a conditional promise. But if it's unconditional, it means God has simply said, Mike, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to fulfill my word. This isn't dependent on you. God knows us guys inside out. And He said, even knowing you and knowing every future thing you and I will ever do, He still said, I'm committing myself to you in these promises. I'm going to do them regardless of how faithful you are or are not. I can sleep at night because God's promises are unconditional. The third thing is this. God keeps His promises in bigger and better ways than the original folks who received them could ever have imagined. In other words, when God makes a promise, and I think, okay, well, the promise is this big. God says, well, no, actually, the promise isn't going to be this big. That's what you thought it was when I spoke it, but it's going to be this big. God doesn't keep the promises in a small, minimalistic way. He doesn't say, oh, you surprised me. You're worse than I thought, and so I'm going to keep the promise, but I'm going to minimize it. No, no, no. He expands the promises, which we'll see this morning. They're bigger and they're better. They're wider and they're deeper than would have originally been understood. The fourth thing is this. All the key promises of God are filled up in Christ. And you'll see this a little, little bit. All the key promises of God come to us. We benefit from them. They're filled up. They're overflowing in Christ, through Christ. And the last one is this. God makes these promises to display His glory. God's glorified. This again for us is an act of worship. If I see God as He is, as the one who initiates promises and then keeps them bigger and better than I anticipated, Lord willing, I see Him and I glorify Him and then I'm transformed because I see Him more fully as He is as the one who initiates and then keeps these promises. Do you know what the first clear covenant in the Old Testament is? This is a hint. Okay. So Noah, right? The term covenant starts in Genesis 6 with Noah. So in Noah 6, you guys know the story that God has said, I'm sorry I made man. Every thought of his heart is evil continually. Terribly violent time before Noah and the ark. And God said, I'm going to wipe out the earth. I'm going to start over. But he said, Noah found grace. God dispensed his grace, his favor on Noah, and said, Noah, I'm going to save you. And this is how he said it in Genesis 6, 18. I'll establish my covenant with you. This is the promise. I'm making a promise with you. You shall go into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. 
of every living thing of all flesh, you'll bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. God said to Noah, the covenant is this, you'll come out of the flood alive. No one and nothing else except what's in the ark is coming out of this flood alive. My covenant is, is with you. You're going to come through alive. And then in chapter 9 at the end, towards the end of Noah's story, God said this about a covenant. He said, I'm making this covenant with you, your offspring, and in fact, with all animal life on the earth. And the covenant promises this, I will never again flood the earth. I'll never again wipe out all life on the earth in a flood. And he said the the sign, the symbol of this covenant promise is the rainbow in the sky. So that's the first covenant. God says, I'm going to save Noah and his family. I'm going to preserve life on the earth. And then afterwards, I'll never flood the earth again in judgment. So that's the first key promise. The second one, I hope you have a study sheet. There's more verses, by the way, on there than we will cover this morning. So the second key promise in the Old Testament is made to an old guy and his wife named Abraham. And this starts in Genesis 12. Life is going along. No one is heirs have reproduced, spread out over the earth. And God says this to this old guy in Ur of the Chaldeans. He says, uh, Abraham... Go from your country and your kindred, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all families of the earth will be blessed. So God says, Abe, leave your family, your, your kindred, the place you've grown up. Go to a new land that I'll show you. I'll make your name great. I'll make you a nation. You'll have so many descendants. They'll become a full nation. I'm going to give you a certain bit of geography in the Middle East. And through you, everyone on the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now these promises to Abraham, they're made over and over and over again. So you'll see them in Genesis 13. Genesis 15, they're given in the way of a sacred covenant. Genesis 17. And then Genesis 22, let me just remark on this one. This is the passage that's referred to in Hebrews 6 that we read earlier. Abraham promised, or excuse me, God promised Abraham a son, and it wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac. And as Isaac grows up, God then tells him, Sacrifice your son, your only son, the son that you love, up on this mountain, Mount Moriah, which is right near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. And so Abraham does. He goes up, he takes Isaac with him, he's ready to slay him, and God stops him, and God says this By myself I have sworn, this is Hebrews 6, God made an oath. God can't swear by anyone or anything greater than himself. So he says, by myself, I swear, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. God was already committed to blessing him. It was going to happen. But he says now by oath, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. No one's going to conquer your offspring. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So you've got promises here to Abraham, a nation and nations and land and a blessing to every family, every nation on the earth. Now, Abraham's heirs, they end up, as you know, the story in Genesis down in Egypt. And several hundred years go by and God sends Moses down there, right? They're treated badly by the Egyptians. And God leads them out. 
And he leads them out with all the miracles and and he takes them to Mount Sinai because he said, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you there. And this is called the Mosaic Covenant. And this was a, guys, this is important. This was a conditional covenant. This is a conditional promise. This means if you do certain things, God says, then I will do certain things. If you don't do certain things, then what I do back is change. So this is just out of Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus 19.5. God says there, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you'll obey, you shall be my treasured possession among all families for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, if you read towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see too, it gives, if you'll do, this is what I'll do. And, and basically God says, if you guys obey, life is going to be great. It's going to be good. You're going to love it. If you disobey, it's going to be very, very hard. And I'm going to banish you from the land. It's going to be very difficult. You won't like it. It's a conditional covenant. What God did for them depended on their faithfulness. And this was a, a difficult thing. And, and God put that covenant in there to show us that if it's dependent on us, guys, God's promises aren't going to come about. We need unconditional covenants or promises so israel comes back into the land abraham had started there israel comes back into the land and again they spread out they take over the land and along the way when king david comes to the throne david feels badly that um, god doesn't have a house like he does and so he tells god he says i want to build you a house and god says well let's let's change this and how about I'll build you a house instead? And this is what he says in 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 9. This is called the Davidic Covenant. God says to King David, I'll make for you a great name, just like Abraham. Like the name of the great ones on the earth, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them. They may dwell in their own place. They'll be disturbed no more. Remember, under King David, uh, Israel was always at war. They'll dwell in their own place. They'll be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers after you've died, I'll raise up your offspring after you, you shall, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." So here's a promise to David that says, one of your sons is going to sit on your throne, rule over Israel and a kingdom that never ends. And last, moving forward, in the days of Jeremiah, so you go from David, let's just say around 1000 BC, and you get to Jeremiah's day around, let's say 600, 400 years later, Israel living under this covenant, they've not done a good job. And so if you've read Jeremiah, you know it's a low point in Israel's history. In fact, it's in Jeremiah. God says to Jeremiah, don't pray for this people because they're going into slavery in Babylon. They're beyond the point of redemption. They've broken covenant faithfulness so thoroughly, so long. I'm keeping my word. I'm sending them in judgment to Babylon. So it's a very depressing storyline at that point in Jeremiah's life. But listen what comes out of the middle of the book of Jeremiah. This is called the New Covenant Promise. Jeremiah 31.31 So in the midst of all this judgment under the conditional covenant, God makes this promise. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Again, God's looked at Israel, broken covenant faithfulness in every way you can, worse than the nations around them. God says, you need a new covenant, and that's my promise to you. In the midst of a period of judgment, God says, I'm going to institute a new covenant one day with you. Be different than the old. My law now it won't be on stones, it'll be on your heart. And your sins, they'll never come up again. You remember if you were a Jew living under the law? There were sacrifices being made at the temple, morning, noon, and night. And my sins, when I sinned to be forgiven, I had to go to the temple, confess my sins. So they'd be covered again. God says there's going to be a time under the new covenant when sin is atoned for absolutely perfectly forever. So guys, we've got some key, key, five key promises God committed Himself to in the Old Testament. So, how has God done on keeping those promises? So, let's just talk through this for a minute. So how about about the first one to Noah? Did God keep that promise? I'd say yes, right? The earth has never been destroyed again by a worldwide flood. And every time we see the rainbow in the sky, we say God kept His promise. So we'll check that one off. Yes. How about the promises to Abraham? We're iffy on this one, guys. We're very iffy. So we say, well, yes and no. Yes, Abraham's famous. You know he's famous to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Abraham's about as famous as you can get around the world today. He, he did generate a nation, the nation of Israel, singularly through Isaac. He also became a father of many nations. That was out of Genesis 22. So you know Abraham is also the father of most of the Arab peoples. So through Ishmael and through the sons of Abraham's second wife, Keturah, Abraham's also the father of multiple nations. So check that one off also. What about, and guys, the land promise is just huge in the promises God made to Abraham. What about Abraham's heirs possessing the land of promise? You know, they've been in and out of that land, haven't they? And for almost 2,000 years, they were out. And while they're in the land today, there's no way that we can say they certainly don't occupy the promised land from the Euphrates River to the River of Egypt. Certainly not. Gaza Strip is part of the land promised to Israel as well. So you say, well, no, Uh, Israel, they've got a little peace and boy, is there acrimony over there today. It's a troubled, troubled area. It doesn't look like that promise has been filled up. How about Moses's conditional covenant? Now, we know God kept his word. He dispossessed Israel for a time. But then he replaced this one. And we'll look at this in relation to the new covenant in just a minute. How about the promise to King David that he would have a son who would rule over his kingdom forever. Now imagine if you're living in Israel in the time of King Solomon. So Solomon occupies pretty much all the land of promise. There's a golden age. The Philistines are still there. The Israelites never got rid of the Philistines along the Gaza Strip area. They're still there today in a a sense. And it was a golden age, but how did Solomon end? Not well. And he died. And that kingdom he ruled over, it failed. So clearly this promise has not been fulfilled yet either. How about the new covenant? (laughs) Now you know we live under the new covenant today, right? 
And I'm glad for that. That's the one that we need. Who was the promise made to, though? It wasn't made to us, guys. It wasn't made to Gentiles. It was made to Israel and Judah. It was made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So on this one, I'd say I'm thrilled to be under it, but I don't see that God's fulfilled this promise to the house of Israel and Judah. So where are we at on this? How, what's God going to do about He can't lie and He's got all power. So where are we going on these promises? In relation to this, if you look in Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40 for just a minute, we say the promises haven't been fully kept. God's hanging out on these. What's He going to do? Well, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 talks about all these heroes of faith. And God praises them because they trusted Him and His promises. And it's in that context that we read this. All these, all these heroes of the faith, Abraham and Sarah and on down the line, all these, though commended through their faith, God said, well done, you trusted me, you believed, they did not receive what was promised. What God promised them, they did not get in their lifetimes. Since or because God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, Hebrews says, God didn't fill up the promise in their day and their time because He was going to do a bigger fulfillment than they anticipated. A fulfillment so big, it had to wait until all of us came on the scene. So they lived and then they died in hope of the fulfillment of the promise which they didn't get in their lifetime. Because God said, I'm still going to keep it, but it's bigger than they could have contained in their life. It includes us today. We're still looking for the conclusion of these promises. And then also this, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, Paul says this almost as an aside because it has to do with his own ability to tell the truth and to keep his promises. But he says this there, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Jesus is the ultimate one who fills up the promises of God. All God's promises find their yes, their amen, their fulfillment, their ultimate completion in the person and work of Christ Himself. So with that, with these two things in mind, it's not that God wasn't going to keep the promise. He said, I'm going to keep it bigger and it's going to include more people than they anticipated. And it's going to be filled up through Christ Himself. Let's go back quickly through the covenant promises and let's see how God's going to do this. So, related to Noah. Now, we said God's kept this promise. But God, I think, has kept it bigger and better than we thought of just as far as the earth not being flooded. You know, if you can picture Noah and his family and the animals inside the ark, when the floodwaters came, it was the ark, it was the ship itself that bore the brunt of the punishing waves of God's judgment in flood. Now, they may be rocked and they may be rolled inside that boat, but guys, they're not drowning. They're staying alive because the ark took the punishment of the water. Well, for Christians, those of us who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus Christ, we're just like Noah. We found grace in God's eyes in Christ. And in Christ, Christ is the one who bore the punishment, the punishing waves, if you will, of God's judgment when He died in our place on the cross. So for those of us who are in Christ, we're like Noah inside the ark. Jesus bears the punishment, we're inside Him, and we come through alive. The ark takes the punishment, Jesus took the punishment to us. You can see this in a verse like Romans 8, verse 1, 
There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. All Christians are in Christ. It's a theologically important term. And we're like Noah in that ark. God's promise to Noah was bigger than just Noah. John 5.24 is another great verse along this line. Jesus said there, Whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. Right now, life to the ages. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death. Think of Noah in the waters of judgment. He's come out of the waters of death and into life, onto solid ground. So we see that in Christ, we have a bigger, better fulfillment of the covenant promise God made to Noah than Noah would have had any inclination of. Christ has become the ark that saves us. Now what about the promises made to Abraham? God promised Abraham that his people would dwell in a land, that he'd be the father of many nations, that they would dwell there in peace. Uh, today, if you look at the nation of Israel, Abraham's physical descendants, they're in the land, but it looks a lot like Ezekiel, I want to say 37 and 38, maybe 38 and 39, where God said uh, he was going to bring Israel back, but they would be like bones that then he laid flesh on, but it would be a lifeless body in the land of promise. Israel's in the land today, but as a nation, they do not accept Jesus as Messiah. They're there, but there's no spiritual life for their totality. Some people have a theology that I, I take issue with, I hope graciously, that says God has no future for the nation of ethnic, physical Israel. And I believe He does. And part of the reason I do is in Romans 11... Uh, Paul says this, and he's talking to Gentiles primarily, remember here, because the church is primarily Gentiles. That's what God's doing today. But to the Gentiles who thought God was done with the nation of Israel, Paul says this, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? Did they fall down never to get up again? The physical descendants of Abraham. Have they fallen down? Are they done? Are they toast? Is God done with them? What about those promises? He, he continues and says, I want you to understand this mystery. This wasn't revealed clearly in the Old Testament. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. God says there is national ethnic salvation for the physical heirs of Abraham, yet future. And it's after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The physical ethnic descendants of Abraham will still find fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises yet to come. But the promise got bigger than that. So if you look at Galatians 3, <clears throat> Galatians 3 and 4, key, key chapters in the New Testament that help us put the Old and New Testaments together. Not only, though, will Abraham's physical descendants get the good of the promise, but now God says... I've not only blessed your physical descendants, but I've given you spiritual descendants greater than you ever could have conceived. So in Galatians 3, Paul says this, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God now says, Abraham, I not only have given you physical descendants, but I'm calling all those Gentiles who believed in you who believed in me in faith just as you believed in me, they are now your spiritual descendants as well. I count them as your spiritual heirs also. And last but not least, in Galatians 3.16, Paul
Paul says this, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring who is Christ. We talked about the second coming a couple weeks ago. So guys, picture this. When Jesus returns to the earth, He's the descendant of Abraham. King Jesus rules over planet earth from Jerusalem and Israel. The physical descendants of Abraham are living there under King Jesus' perfect rule. And the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the church, those who have their resurrection bodies, who've come or returned with Jesus to the earth, they're here with Him as well. So the promise that Abraham and his heirs would live in the land of promise safely, it will be fulfilled. But now it's not just to the physical heirs, it's to the spiritual heirs, and it's ultimately to Jesus Himself. The promise is much bigger, much broader, much deeper, and much wider than Abraham could have guessed. I hate when this happens. Are you guys good? Okay. What about the Mosaic Covenant? What do we do with that? Well, we know it's replaced, right? We know Jesus replaced it because He told us that. But think of this. In Jesus' day, people accused Him of being a lousy Jew. They said, you're not keeping the law. But Jesus said, no, no, no. Matthew 5, verse 17, He said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them or to fill them up. Jesus kept the Mosaic Law. He kept it perfectly. He kept it fully in the spirit God always intended. He was the first innocent person to walk the planet and to keep that conditional covenant God made. That was key. But then He did something else. This is from Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So Jesus does this with the conditional Mosaic Covenant. He keeps it. He's the only person who ever did, who ever could. But then as the innocent Lamb of God, He becomes the curse for all those who broke God's moral law in His death on the cross. He kept the law. He's innocent. Then He becomes the one who absorbs the curse of God for the faithless covenant breakers. Jesus fills up the conditional Mosaic covenant as well so that He can institute the new covenant. <clears throat> what about the promise to David about the son who rules on a throne forever? Now again, Solomon looked good in his day, but that kingdom ended, didn't it? As did Solomon's life. We know from Matthew 1.1, Jesus is called the Son of David and the Son of Abraham. Matthew wants us to know Jesus is the key one that descends. He's the heir of Abraham and He's the Son of David. He's called that multiple times in Matthew's Gospel. You remember Palm Sunday, the crowds hail Him as the Son of David. They understood that was the claim and that's who He was. If you read verses like 2 Peter 1.11, we're given entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His is the kingdom that never ends. Or in Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world, this is future for us, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign how long? Forever and ever. 
Christ in Himself in His kingdom is going to fill that up. And last, the new covenant. You know, Bill's going to lead us later here in worship as we remember the Lord and His death and resurrection. But he said in Luke 22, when he took the bread and gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God promised the new covenant, the unconditional pardon of all our sins, His law written inside us on our hearts. And Jesus is the one who brought this about. No one else could have instituted this covenant. Jesus in His body, through His blood, He's the one who fulfilled the new covenant. So guys, whatever the promises are God's made, He's going to keep them. The ones that we have not seen filled up yet, they're going to be filled up. Bigger and better than ever anticipated when they were given. So because this is the kind of God we love and serve, what does that mean for us as we think about Him? Now, maybe we're living in the good of these covenants, these promises right now, aren't we? We live under King Jesus' rule. Our sins are forgiven, the new covenant. But what does this look like for you and I on a day-to-day basis? You know, in a group this size, we know on any given day, some of us are struggling emotionally. Some of us got sin issues that were killing us yesterday or last night or this morning. Some of us have financial difficulties, right? What, how do these impact us? What does this mean for us? At least a couple of things. Whether we feel the, the glory of the new covenant on us today, passages like Matthew 28 where Jesus says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. You'll never be alone. He reiterates that in Hebrews 13. Whatever you and I are going with, we are never as a Christian alone. God is always going through the valley of the shadow of death with us. You're never by yourself. There's all kinds of promises to us in the New Testament and these covenant promises from the Old that if we're aware of, they give us stability. They give us hope in life, whatever's going on in the moment. The difference sometimes for us in going through difficult times, whether we're doing so well or poorly, simply is related to do we know what God has promised us? Because we're probably not living in the good of a promise that we don't know about. So if we read our Bibles, Old and New Testaments, we might know what some of those promises are. We should also serve the Lord with loftier expectations. God says His Word won't return void. When you and I are part of what God's doing, we should have lofty expectations because we know God takes the smallest offering, like His promise, and then He blows them up bigger and better than we could have anticipated. We should look on the future with greater hope because we know God will keep all those promises, the big promises and the little promises, the ones to nations, generations and the ones to you and to me singularly and we should also guys become more consistent and careful in giving and keeping our word if we serve a promise making promise keeping god it would be good for us in fact we would assume right in that process of transformation that we would take on more of that character as well that we initiate towards those in need and that we keep the promises we made let's pray lord just considering the, the crazy way that you take promises that look limited in scope, either in size or time or quality, and it's not that you keep them a little, you blow them up. You fulfill them gloriously, so much bigger and better than ever could have been anticipated. Lord, would you help us to open our minds up to your goodness a little bit more fully
Lord, seeing how faithful you are to yourself, to your word, to your promises, and to us, would you help us to trust you, to worship you, to love you? And Lord, in that, that transformation you're working in us, become more fully engaged in the life of your Son. We commit ourselves to you in him. Amen.